Hello and welcome. This is Exit the Stage Door, and I am Aaron Teachin, and it has been so long since we did this that Twitter made me confirm my email address when I tweeted about this recording possibility. <sighs> but here we are, and this is Faction of Fools. It is a commedia del arte uh, troupe. I sincerely hope I did better justice to it then than I did during the episode, but um, Toby Mulford is a very forgiving person and a very generous person, uh, and I hope y'all go see this show, which is... <sighs> hey, guess what, guys? It's 10.30. Um, uh, okay, that wasn't so bad, right? That wasn't so bad. It gives it a little character. It gives it a little flair. Uh, <laughs> look, I sat down with Toby Mulford, the artistic director and director, uh, uh, the artistic director of Faction of Fools and the director of their recent production of The Miser, and Rachel Spickton Mulford, who is the director of public relations for Faction of Fools, as well as an actor with Faction of Fools, and Kyla Watts, who is the directing apprentice for the show, to talk about The Miser and Comedia and... Um, performance practice and the history of performance and, and how performance can practice can actually illuminate a show. Uh, it was, I mean, it, it was great. We talked about so many things that I love to talk about, including multilingualism and medieval history and just all kinds of great stuff. I encourage you guys to see The Miser. It opens to on Friday, but there's a pay-what-you-can performance on Thursday. That would be today, June 2nd. Um, and they have their regular performance run starting on Friday, June 3rd. And you can find all that information at factionoffools.org. Those links are in the show notes. Please check them out. Please buy tickets. Please find out what these people are doing at Gallaudet University, um, doing some really incredible stuff. And it was a real absolute pleasure to have this actually too short um a conversation with these folks and I really hope that email ding did not make the episode and I apologize if that ding hurt your ears like it hurt mine but either way guys ah, faction of fools you should check them out they were a blast I'm so happy this happened faction of fools mm, is it I don't know maybe <laughs> it's not really artsy sorry I'm just I'm just chit-chatting no yeah I know that's 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 the that's the goal. Okay. <laughs> yeah, to right. chat for the, the levels. Uh, yes, exactly. And I can stop chatting whenever you want. <laughs> we are, I'm going to take these off, and I have good waveforms and everything, so okay. we can get going. We should, I did this the last time I had a bigger group, let's get everyone's voice identified. Okay. So, you are? Toby Mulford. And your title is? Uh, I'm the artistic director of Faction of Fools. And you're directing the show. And I'm directing the show. <laughs> <laughs> Which is The Miser. <laughs> I'm Rachel Spicknell-Mulford, and I'm acting in The Miser, and acting as producer on this production as well. And I do the PR and marketing for the company. And my name is Kyla Watts, and I am an intern for this show at The, the Miser <laughs> under Toby. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, and I'm Aaron Teachman, your host. <laughs> I've never done that. I've only done that in the intro before, so that's fun. Uh, I'm still, I've, only, I've only been doing it for like 50 episodes, and I still, is it 50? I have no idea. I don't keep track. It's, but, so I'm <laughs> still learning number. new things. That's, it's decent. I feel, feel like I got a good back catalog. Always looking for new opportunities, of course. Um, and today we're here for a couple reasons. Um, uh, but what, the person who put me on to what was happening with this is Catherine Zerb, who did, uh, 
this um, original pronunciation production of Shakespeare up at Baltimore Shakespeare Factory, which mm-hmm. I reviewed for DC Metro Theater Arts, and she's like, oh, you should definitely talk to Faction Fools. That's what I'm going to be doing in June. It's like, oh, mm-hmm. yeah, actually, that is great, because I also am a, an avid follower of Gwen's adventures on Twitter. Oh, uh, yes. She's awesome, and she tweets about through the account, right? As, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Yes. As well. She's really good she's, at that. She's yeah. our official social media person. <laughs> she is excellent at it, and fun, and all gets around. Yes. In the, in the acting gig, I do not know how she has any time at all. Yeah. Time management, I guess? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, maybe that's what, that when I finally do track her down and get her on the show, we'll have to talk about how she does that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so you guys are doing, um, oh, we'll, we'll come back to this, because you guys are doing the Miser, and you're doing a new translation of the Miser, which is absolutely yes. awesome. Uh, we talked a little bit how I'm, I'm a Germanist by trade so like the issue of translations is one that is always fascinating to me yeah um but i think we should talk a little bit about commedia del art in general in whether i even said that correctly or not uh you didn't <laughs> but that's okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh sure uh it's commedia dell'arte oh there you go um yeah it's italian so you pronounce all the vowels um and it's a style of theater that started oh man i can never remember the numbers in the 16th, 16th century, century uh, in Italy uh, and grew rapidly over the next several hundred years. Um, it's sort of heydayed. It varies depending on who you talk to, but most people can agree that it was really on the rise in the 17th century. And by the late 18th, it was, it was going into decline. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Uh, the things that set Commedia dell'arte apart from a lot of other kinds of theater uh, are its use of masks mm-hmm. uh, and its use of stock characters um, and its imp- improvisational basis. Um, and to me, those three things all go together. Mm-hmm. Um, because essentially the way these groups would work historically is a single actor would learn a particular character uh, and play that character for their entire lives. Mm. Um, So there would just be this wealth of knowledge that these actors built up uh, so that when they worked together they had just this huge store of of skills and uh, techniques that they could just throw at any play that they worked on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, uh, Commedia dell'arte gives us a whole lot of things that we take for granted now in theater. Um, it was the first time we see professional actors. Oh, okay. uh, in fact, you, that's how you can translate the name. Uh, commedia can be more broadly translated as, as not just comedy, but a, a play, a mm-hmm. theatrical presentation, right. and uh, dell'arte is is of, of the artist, but but kind of in a in a craftsman like yeah. sense. Right. Yeah. Um, so so Artisanal. literally, you can translate it as professional theater. Mm. Interesting. Um, so it's the first time we see professional actors. Uh, it's the first time we see actresses. Oh. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, up to that point, um, women's parts were played by men. 
uh, and and Commedia is the first time we have a record of it may have happened before, right. but we don't have it right. yes. <laughs> written down anywhere. Um, it's first, a pesky thing that writing it down. Yes. Part. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So so uh, it's the first time we see actresses, uh, and it's left us with a whole lot of ideas and images and iconography that we would still recognize today. Mm -hmm. um, Arlecchino, the servant in the diamond print outfit, mm -hmm. um, who later became Harlequin in the English theater. Um, Pulcinella is another famous character from Commedia who um, is kind of a national, national, uh, <laughs> local uh, hero of the city of Naples. Mm. Um, who uh, later transformed into Mr. Punch of the Punch uh, and Judy yes, shows. Okay, yeah. So it's like these characters and their images have kind of evolved um, through through the years and are still with us. Mm -hmm. um, and the last thing that I'm giving you just sort of my standard <laughs> intro spiel. Um, the last thing that's interesting about the study of Commedia is Structurally, um, the playwrights of of the 16th and 17th and really 18th centuries um, really pulled on commedia structurally, mm. especially when they were writing comedies. So any of the comedies of Shakespeare, those are commedia plays. Mm -hmm. um, they look like commedia plays, they feel like commedia plays. Um, and similarly with the work of Moliere, like especially a lot of his earlier stuff it is I mean he shared a theater with a commedia company okay. <laughs> um, there was he was criticized at one point because his because Scanorel his signature character was so derivative of <laughs> of this other famous actor who was working in Paris at the uh, time <laughs> um, who, who was an Italian actor uh, so there's a lot of cross-fertilization mm -hmm. with with classical theater of of the scripted forms mm -hmm. so I think that's a, that's a pretty good introduction yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's it, because one of the things I found so one of my one of my specialties in German studies was uh, medieval studies okay and it, it is absolutely fascinating to me when you when you deal with Shakespeare how misunderstood it is because they don't grasp the medieval roots of the iconography and yes. the language and after I spent some time and most of it most of it was um, obviously studying the Germanic speaking lands and didn't focus on English drama at all except right. that the Germans love Shakespeare like, <laughs> yes love him. the 19th century was this great period of time where everybody was just rewriting Shakespeare into German over and over and over again <laughs> Um, but yeah, so so these, it makes sense to me that you have these older theater forms have this have this backbone yeah. of of what was in the culture that you, we sort of have to re-educate ourselves about, like because people didn't even bother writing it down because everybody just knew it. Yeah. But now you're like, oh, actually, I should look at that. <laughs> it doesn't mean what I think it means, kind of thing, yeah. all the time. And so um, that's really it's that's one of the things I think is fascinating about Faction of Fools and and that it's 
and what your mission as a theater is. Yeah. Because education is such an important part of it. You have to educate the audience to get them to sort of appreciate it right. as well. And that's, that's a difficult task. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> do you have, like, um, do you, how, how much do you feel like you need to get your audience on board when you're, when you're trying to do this? Like, do you, and what do you do to prepare them for it? Um, well, by this point, we've sort of built up a, a following. Mm, okay, yeah. Um, I don't even know how old the company is. Uh, the company was founded in... 2009. Yeah, first few years were a little, a little dicey. We did do things, but we were looking for a home. Mm, yeah. Um, and so, really, we started getting on the map once we moved in here at Gallaudet. Um, so then we could start doing shows, mm, yeah, um, yeah, and and having a season, right? Because we didn't have to <laughs> scramble every time we wanted yes. to put on a show. Yes. Um, I lost the original thread of that. Oh, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Our getting it, getting it our audience. audience. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, I think we've believed pretty much from the beginning that if we have to really make an effort to educate our audience about the history, then we're sunk. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, we have to entertain first. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And commedia in its, in its heart is a populist art form. Um, you really, really shouldn't need to have a lot of background mm -hmm. and, and education and context in order to enjoy it. Mm -hmm. um, and when I see commedia that I don't like, it's for that reason. It's a bunch of people putting on a play with this aesthetic, but that you kind of have to go, oh, this was, this was historically interesting at the time, and isn't this a quaint, oh, yeah. interesting uh, period piece that I don't quite get, right. but, I, but the costumes are neat. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah, we get that at Shakespeare all the time. Right. <laughs> Yeah, so, so really uh, that's been one of the major sort of focal points when we put on a show mm. is, yes, we do want to educate people about the style, but mostly we want to use the style to illuminate mm -hmm. the play that we're working on and help the audience see it in a different light. Um, so that... Yeah, so that it, we don't want to be making theater for scholars. Right. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great point. <laughs> we have a lot of fun sharing with the audience the, the, the gem that, that is at the heart of Commedia to show to them that you can do exaggerated characterizations and um, just really broad comedy and that that doesn't have to be a bad thing. That right. It, that it, can give you so much, can give the text so much, for laughter's sake and for dramatic effect. Right. So when we, when we work on a play by Shakespeare, which we've done a couple of, mm -hmm. uh, that's one of the main questions is, so why do we, why do, we do this play in this style? Mm -hmm. um, and oftentimes we find that Imposing, superimposing the style over the play 
helps the text ring mm -hmm. in a different way. Like all of those things that Shakespeare writes into his plays that a lot of people cut out <laughs> um, suddenly make sense mm -hmm. when you're doing it in this exaggerated style with this heightened physicality, with these heightened looks, with the, with the masks and the physical stylization. Um, it sort of becomes the size that Shakespeare was writing for. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and so uh, with many of these plays, we've had audiences come away saying, oh, that thing that I always thought was stupid and nonsensical and I didn't get, now it makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's one of the things I, I, I mean, I, I, write, I write plays and other stuff like that. And uh -huh. it's something you struggle with all the time, like how much do I put in the stage direction? How, like, cause you know, when you're doing something on spec, by in, in your own head, you are the first director of the play. Yeah. Um, but in real life, you got a lot of collaborators between the, you and the text. Yes. So Shakespeare doesn't, famously doesn't have stage direction precisely because of this toolkit that he has and was drawing on already. It's like, we don't need that. We're, we're, I'm just throwing this onto the page and the rest of it will come with our performance practice. He wouldn't have used those words, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> um, we'll do it when we get to this. We'll figure it out when we get on stage. Yeah. To me, to me, the enduring genius of Shakespeare and some of these other people is how quickly they worked yeah. and how much of a, like it was a factory-like process. Like, okay, we need this, let's go. Let's just, don't worry about the writing. Don't get pressures about the writing. Like throw it up on stage. Let's go, let's go, let's throw it up on stage. And yep. people get the idea, not because of like how artfully crafted the plot is because they're often not yeah <laughs> but because of the rest of the stuff that's happening on stage it's a uh, the performance style really matters you bring a play to life you don't really experience a play on the page I mean Albie and some of those other people sort of went yeah. for that aesthetic when people were reading plays but mm -hmm. in general I, I think that makes a lot of sense like the play isn't a play until it's on stage and there's a, an audience for it yeah well, like the comedia actors, those Shakespearean actors must have been were true masters of their craft. It's like, I know exactly what to do with this once, you know, once I've got this stuff in front of me because this is what we do every day. And we know each <laughs> yeah. other and we're a company. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. what we aim for. <laughs> <laughs> do you, so do you have a company of actors then or we, an informal one? Or? We don't have a standing company. Mm -hmm. uh, we do have an informal company. Um, we definitely have people that we like to work with. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it's hard to get actors to hang around. <laughs> um, so so uh, over the years, we've built sort of this stable of, of people that we go to first. Um, and of course, every time they do a show with us, they, they learn a little bit more about the style mm -hmm. and they become more familiar with mm -hmm. it. Um, but pretty much all of our shows will have a fairly high quotient of people who are new to it as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so part of what we do is train them. I was say, so the rehearsal process is often one of training then as well. Yeah. Yeah. That makes total sense. Yes. So, uh, quick question. Do you, do, is she so the intern for the show or for the? Show. Just for the show. Okay. Yes. Okay. So how did you get attached to the show? 
Well, uh, Toby first came to our school and put on the Basilisk of Barnagasa, which I auditioned for, was cast in, and then that's where I first started working with him with Commedia dell'Art. And then he also taught a class at George Washington University oh, okay. that I took. I and I um, just ended up asking if I could get more involved in what he's doing and learn more about the process, about directing in general. And he's like, well, we're putting on this show. You could you know, be an intern on this. And here I am. <laughs> <laughs> so is that... Uh, you were an undergraduate? Or, yes. Yeah. So in theater studies, I take it? Or? Yes. Okay. Theater and dance. Theater and dance, all right. Yeah. <laughs> the cool thing about uh, that, the Basilisk of Barnagasso was that it was devised from a Commedia scenario. So hmm. that was in the fall, and I had the pleasure of seeing it. <laughs> and, um, and it was great. It was a learning process for everyone. Mm. Yeah. We had no contact with Commedia dell'Art, just because I, I guess we'd never been exposed to that, mostly, I think. There was one guy in the cast who had done, I think, mostly uh, clowning and whatnot. He's oh, in a summer yeah. camp. That was going to be my next question. <laughs> yeah. It's certainly very helpful to know that. Yeah. But, was... um, yeah, we, it was it was great eye-opening experience. Just being able to act at such a high level um, is something that I think most young actors are not exposed to, unless you're at, like, a... Super great, right. Lambda or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So I, dance leads me to, th- to think of thinking about the, because it, movement is seems like it's. I mean, obviously, I'm just drawing on like vague notions of what I remember from school like eight years ago. It's like, yeah. oh, stylized movement and gesture seems mm-hmm. like an important part of this form. It's it's super important. Okay. Um, do you want to talk about that a little? I feel like I've been talking. Oh, about yeah. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, I had a whole lot of thoughts at once. So, sorry. Hold on. Let me think. What's, I, I don't what's actually important? To I think can about. start blabbing away, and then Blab you away. can interrupt. <laughs> me. Um, yeah. Yes. Yeah, so the characters are are physically realized characters. Mm-hmm. Each character has a particular way that they move, and a kind of lexicon of movements that are available to them. Um, and what this does is so much of the style is about making what's internal and uh, making, taking what's internal and making it external. Mm-hmm. Um, so the physicalities of the characters serve to externalize their emotional lives. Um, uh, the founder of this of Faction of Fools, uh, Matt Wilson, uh, would always say, put the Stanislavski in your feet. <laughs> <laughs> you like that? I love that. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so, so, and that, that sort of helps with this whole idea of if you're doing this style with these big, broad physical gestures, um, if there isn't emotional truth behind it, then then it just looks weird. Right. Um, so the, yeah, the, the, the sort of learned physicalities of the characters help get the audience comfortable with the idea that if somebody wants to run away, that you're going to see, see that in their feet first. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, if somebody's having a hard time, you're going to see that in their spine. Um, so, so, yes. And then, the, so I can... Uh, thinking about the dance training thing, 
um, having some kind of physical training that gives you a, um, a vocabulary with yourself and an internal like reference point of how of physical awareness mm-hmm. I've noticed over the years totally helps actors more quickly um, latch on to the comedia training because mm. y- you know it's not just mimic me do this right. it's about you know where's the impulse coming from and mm-hmm. um, so that when you're grande zanying across the floor and you say what do your feet want you internally have a reference point for okay well if I I don't know, whatever that vocabulary is for you, if you're, it's a dance vocabulary right. or if it's a more like Lukakian or whatever. So, um, so I would imagine having dance training would help a lot. I don't have a lot of dance training myself. So I don't, I mean, what do you think about coming at it from that perspective? It's definitely really helpful. Just because dance is so specific to each person, you have to just know what your body looks like when you're doing mm. it, even though you can't look at your feet while you're acting. <laughs> That's not gonna yeah. work. <laughs> <laughs> um, but just, just knowing, I guess, how your body's flowing and what you're trying to convey to the audience for each character. Yeah. So it's remarkable to watch, definitely. And then it's remarkable to feel when it works for you. Mm, yeah. Which are definitely different. <laughs> yeah. yeah and then so the other thought I had, too, related to dance is, is line. Because like it's not about having a vocabulary of dre- gesture. Like, you don't always gesture like this as this character. But you have to put shape into your body so angularity mm-hmm. in the comedic characters and long lines in the in the dramatic characters and the the young lovers um so i, th- I mean for me line matters a lot when i'm actually on stage mm-hmm. i'm like i don't know what to be doing right now well i'll stick my elbows out and then we'll see what happens from there <laughs> um yeah it's interesting i um didn't have a lot to do with dance until i came to uh DC and Shakespeare obviously hosts the Velocity Festival and I've also gotten a chance to work with the Washington Ballet <laughs> and that, that's how I but I also get to well get to is sometimes a strong word for it because <laughs> the company does class before every performance I work for them on the Nutcracker okay so the Warner Ooh. the Nutcracker they don't have they don't have space for class the class happens on stage during pre-show like right up until half hour <laughs> Which is, the first time it happened at City Harmon Hall, I was like, wait, what do you mean I can't do a check? No, no, they're going to be on stage the whole time. You can't, the, that light can't be bright in their eyes. You can't be distracting them. They're, they're moving at full speed, learning new, they're learning the next, maybe oh. not even that upcoming next dance. They're learning the dance after that. Every day they're learning a new set of choreography. Wow. Mm. Uh, <laughs> which is fascinating because it happens They've obviously been, these, these dancers have been obviously at it for, even the youngest of them has probably been doing it for at least 10 years. Right. And the speed that they grasp this because they have that vocabulary yeah. built up, they're like, the dance master is just reeling off moves like five or six at a time. Wow. And then all of a sudden the entire company is able to just do them. Like, and I've seen this in musicals too, where the choreographer's like, okay, do this. And that's all it took. Like, yeah. <laughs> I was like, no, 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 you need to slow that down. Let's repeat that. Can we talk about this? Like, dance companies will just, it's like birds flocking. They will move en masse exactly right. Like, that level wow. of, yeah. of mastery of your vocabulary is... And your body. And your body, Training yeah, and... Is really amazingly 
I imagine it's all second nature after a while. Oh, I'm sure that part of their brain isn't even on. Like they're yeah. just they're just moving. <laughs> they don't have to think about it at all. <laughs> Which I imagine is what you describe for for people who in in the 16th or 17th century yeah. this was their life's work like yeah. would have been able to get to that level. Right. Yep. Well, you got to do it every day. If you like it's like ballet dancers having class mm-hmm. before their performance. I mean, you don't give you don't give yourself much leeway. <laughs> yeah. That's discipline. Yeah. That's... Yeah. It's lived. <laughs> <laughs> Which is interesting. Um, oh, but then, okay, so back to the your gesture question. Mm, yeah. Of course, the other big thing that jumped into my mind is, you know, we're here at Gallaudet, and oh. um, we have this, we're very fortunate to have this lovely friendship with Gallaudet University Theater Arts Department, and we've been here since 2011, and it's been really healthy as far as that whole cross-fertilization thing because we could talk about multilingualism we could talk about visual a gestural theater um visual gestural thinking mm-hmm. and all of that and um we should just back up not per, perhaps people don't know what Gallaudet no, is I think that's possibly oh true. well Gallaudet University is uh the premier university in the world for deaf and hard of hearing students I regret that we don't have one of, our, we have a deaf cast member who's a, just graduated from the theater program here, <laughs> and she's amazing, and I regret we don't have her here, a part of the interview today. Yep. Scheduling was, was difficult, but um, <laughs> because she could talk about this way more so, and I won't, I won't presume that I can talk much about right. the, um, the sort of how, you know, how we use ASL mm-hmm. in our show, American Sign Language, how we use that in our show, but can talk about this relationship which um has just been amazing because comedia is very physical but it's also very verbal and it also has this history of multilingualism which is the fourth pillar toby mentioned masks stock characters and improvisation and really the fourth pillar of comedia is multilingualism because italy didn't have a a national language at that time so even just from city-state to city-state, if a troop mm. went over to Milan, they're not all going to necessarily speak the language of the audience. Uh, maybe one guy in a troop does, and he, that day, tells most of the plot points. Um, and everybody else might know five words in Milan. Milanese. Milanese. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and then that continues in the, in the yeah. whole broader yeah. history as they hop around Europe. And it just feeds that commedia gem again mm-hmm. of taking the internal and making it external in a in a way that is universally understood by all mm-hmm. all of us because it's it's just very honest physicalized hunger or <laughs> love or what have you yeah I think this was where I was first introduced to Gramolo too yeah because mm. in order to like do research for the for the show that um I was in first. I just went online and looked up a lot of Commedia um, training mm-hmm. and what people were doing. And at one of the schools, they put on like a little scene and it was just all lots of words <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. that you don't understand that vaguely sound like language, but you're pretty sure it's not. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. Maybe you can talk more about Gramolo and how yeah, gr- Gramolo is is the term for made up language. Mm, okay. Um, the the Swedish chef on the Muppets mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is is a fine example of Gramolo. <laughs> um, and and yeah, this the Commedia 
would use this a lot historically. So, you know, just sort of nonsense gibberish yeah, words. Yeah. So that you get that people are talking and maybe they drop in a few intelligible words so you yeah. understand what they're saying. Um, what we do at, as part of our partnership with Gallaudet is that all of our shows that we produce here have to include um, some Gallaudet students from the theater mm, department. Okay. And over the years, we've experimented in different ways in incorporating them into the plays. Um, you know, our very first play here was thrown together so fast. <laughs> like, we, you know, the partnership happened and we were putting on a show. So, um, you know, without the structures in place, that show basically just used, used them as silent servants, mm -hmm. which is a part of the commedia form. Once we got that one under our belts, we actually started um, working on how to incorporate sign language into the plays mm -hmm. um, so, that, so that at this point, um, all of our shows that happen here have English and sign language in them. Okay, yeah. Um, so like for the miser, uh, our, our Jane, our Gallaudet student intern, um, is playing one of the young lovers. Mm -hmm. So her scenes kind of are just straight out in ASL. Hmm. Um, and uh, in other plays, we have uh, cast the the ASL speakers as, you know, from another country. <laughs> like, in, in Hamlet, uh, right. the Norwegians yes. all signed. <laughs> um, and Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, who we decided were Nor Norwegian. Right. Just by, just, just, they were, you know, cuz, yeah. why not? They were Hamlet's friends, and um, Hamlet learned sign language in college. Yeah. Them, <laughs> right. <laughs> and so, so basically, uh, uh, it's 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 been done differently in different plays, but the overarching idea is just this sort of bullheaded notion that people can communicate with each other across language yeah. barriers. Yeah. Well, this, I mean, to me, this is as a, again a former Germanist. This yeah. is a very fascinating topic about a most people don't need to concern themselves with the history of languages, but right. it is what we understand as German or Italian or French. Well, French is a little older, and Spanish right. got codified a lot way before either Germany, German or Italian, but that's because mm. Germany and Italy didn't exist until the <laughs> 19th century, yeah. which is a fascinating, like, Italy did not exist until the 19th century. <laughs> Everything you thought you knew about Italy, you're, the North belonged to the Germans for a long time, or... Yeah swapped hands with the French or the Pope like it's such a confusing mixture <laughs> yep. oh, I said this, what did I say in the other day it's like it makes Game of Thrones look like children's <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. It's so he, he really simplified it yeah like, <laughs> it's it's crazy but along with that is that there is a deep localization of language yeah to the point where in Switzerland still today people can know what village they're from mm -hmm. because oh. that's the in, in German German is taught as a foreign language in Switzerland, Swiss German is so different from German. Uh -huh. And like Danes, for example, K 
can understand Norwegians and Swedes yep. who can understand each other, although they pretend that they don't <laughs> um, for lots of reasons. But the Danes can understand that and a little bit of German, but nobody can understand nobody what the Danes Nobody understands the Danes. <laughs> <laughs> As a foreign language learner, one of the things you, you learn very quickly is you have to deal with not knowing. Yeah. Like you have to deal with, you're reading a text and you've got you to gotta grasp the essence of it and you have to go back over the times when you definitely, definitely did not understand that sentence at all and redo it. But you're never going to completely understand the work that you're consuming. And that's one of the major barriers for people learning other languages is this tolerance for being, again, like a five-year-old who just does not understand what's happening in the world around them. But a lot, it's, it's actually something that used to happen all the time. It's yeah. pretty dated. Like, the reason that German existed as it did was because Luther put together a bunch of words that he heard everybody using mm -hmm. and then, then printed them. And now everybody had the same words to use yeah. so that's how that language got like ironed out but before that you had to work it out you had to be like oh, okay i i get it i don't speak your language and you don't speak mine but we have changed money i've given you my goods and yeah. you've given me your grain and this all comes together and works um so i love that there is someone embracing this notion that you don't necessarily have to completely understand every word mm -hmm. to understand the truth of the emotions behind what's being done right um that's one side of the coin. <laughs> the other side of the coin is, I'm, I'm going to get into murky territory, okay. so I'm just going to preface that because really a hearing person should not presume to talk for mm. deaf people's mm -hmm. experience. Mm -hmm. So I'm, so we can repeat a little bit of what people have told us. Okay. Um, but the, it's a little different for ASL mm. because there's not just a language barrier going on. There's also a, a deaf and hearing mm. thing going mm -hmm. on. Um, so we, like, when I, when I go into a play, I'm like, ah, whatever. The audience can just keep up. We're all just going to work in the language that we have, and we'll get along, and we'll figure it all out. Um, <laughs> That's kind of at odds with the educational mission of Gallaudet sure. and, and, our, our own. and our own, yeah, and our <laughs> own sort of pur purpose of, of being here, um, uh, because full access mm -hmm. is really right, really yeah. important. Yeah. Um, so that's one of the what the the other side of eh, whatever. We'll just all understand each other is being here the expectation is no really if a deaf person comes to our show mm -hmm. we want them to understand everything right and that we don't want because the predominant experience of seeing theater as a deaf person is mostly this is not theater that has been made with me in mind right right um so i have to sort of get what i can um from it so so yeah one of one of the things that we try very hard to do is, is, is satisfy that need for, for real complete access. Right. Yeah. Satisfying access. Yes. For everybody. Yeah. 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 And that's why Rachel Grossman has suggested that I do it. You should. <laughs> you I should. should. I really totally just have a set, like a real, I mean, it, it's a rich conversation. And, mm -hmm. and like I said to you before, I would be happy to, 
yeah, yeah. help you con connect you to the folks here in the, Sweet. In we the should department. I should yeah. definitely, um, <laughs> I'll drop you an email. That would be yeah. super. Because they would probably love to talk to you. Yeah, I think it'd be yeah. great. Um, what did that make me think of? Oh, well, we have had, <laughs> it's been very fun to give some of our hearing audiences that experience of not understanding. Mm, yeah. We did a show um, a couple years ago that uh, was a devised piece from an original scenario, mm -hmm. and it was called um, The Lady Becomes Him, which was our invented yeah, English we, title. We retitled it. Nobody, <laughs> nobody can remember the title now. <laughs> and nobody can remember the title, but it would have been even worse in Italian. So, uh, like, Don the Zani. Yeah, that's great. There's so much. It says so much in the title. You know, nobody understood. <laughs> <laughs> so um, that was a great great experience, you know, devising from the bottom up with an ensemble of actors, everything mm -hmm. about it. Uh, and one of the fun things was having two Gallaudet students who were a pair, a lover pair, so that, again, we had that, that joyful experience of letting them develop their scenes, mm. even more so than in the current project because they were, we were improvising all of our text mm -hmm. into a script, which we then performed the same script every night, but it was from our own juices. And... Um, so their scenes were their own invention, and they were um, beautiful poetry, beautiful ASL poetry. And we didn't accommodate the... No, wait. We, oh, we, we had the caption board. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we, we had the we caption board on. Oh, okay. Okay, yeah. so they had, so the, so the, okay, so the hearing audience had that. They, they got to have that experience of reading, bit, yeah. reading the captions or not, yeah. and yeah. watching the poetry be beautiful. And, yeah. and um, anyway, so that's, that's a nice... It's fun to do that. Yeah, it's one of the more interesting corners of the like day-to-day -day life of regional theater. I've exclusively worked in uh, Lord member theaters. Okay. For I mean, I've done odd jobs for other people, but that's yeah. my basic existence. And access is, is important for all of them. I believe it's in the mission statement yep. about their connection to the community for all of them, if yep. not into yep. the Lord like regs themselves. So we've always had accommodations for the blind which is absolutely fascinating yes. i uh shared a booth i was running projections for one show and but that was also where the lady doing the uh doing the audio described audio described for the blind mm -hmm. was was doing it and i was like this is crazy because <laughs> i'm seeing the show and listening to her and she's doing an incredible job of just like fast motion talking about beautiful like word descriptions of what was happening in the, the gowns and the people's behaviors to one another. It was cool. It was amazing. And it was always a bummer when like she would do it. One time she did it for act one and then intermission. They're like, actually nobody's listening. Oh, she got to go home early. But yeah. it's like, oh, this is so unfortunate. <laughs> but theaters have two different approaches to dealing with deaf um, patrons. And that is um, almost everyone has done ASL. Mm -hmm. Um, but the Alley and a couple others in Houston uh, and Folger also will caption and they're not necessarily the same performance but those both methods will be offered at yes. some point during the run and captioning is a different experience yeah for sure than the ASL like I, I always find myself spending a lot of time watching the ASL people during the show because of and they as the, the I don't know who the partner organization is with Shakespeare, but they are very dedicated. They, all of their volunteers have seen the show like six or seven times by the time they do their ASL interpreted show, and they are great at it. Yeah. It's amazing to watch um, how two people can reduce like Coriolanus yeah. into something that's that like that is, is, is pretty amazing. 
So yeah, few, pencil that in a future episode, uh, video <laughs> episode actually. Um, yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, yes. So yeah, but we should also talk about since I, I have circled around it, but we should talk about this production in particular. Yeah. Yes. Because it is a new translation. Yes. What was the uh, you commissioned it? We commissioned sort it. Sort of like I, yeah. Explain this. So, um, <laughs> so one of the. Uh, one of the nice things about working with Shakespeare is that it's in English and public domain. Mm. So you can cut it to shreds if you want um, to, make it, to make it fit your time frame yes. as much as anything else. Yes. Um, you can't do the same thing with, uh, when you're working with a script in translation mm. because those translations are copyrighted. And you know, obviously you want to respect the translator's work mm -hmm. um, in addition to be legally required <laughs> right. to do so. Um, so uh, when I decided that we were going to try to do this, this play by Moliere, um, it occurred to me, hey, my father has a PhD in French literature, which he hasn't gotten to get a whole lot of use out of. Like his, his career set kind of went a different direction. Uh, um, but he, you know, he, he loves French. Uh, my he whole, loves Moliere. He loves, he loves, well, he very much likes Moliere. Oh, okay. Uh, Moliere <laughs> isn't his specialty. Okay. Like I, I kept saying, um, uh, you know, you, can, you could do a Moliere translation for us. And he said, well, what about Phaedre? I want to do Phaedre. <laughs> no, no, Dad, no, no, we can't do Phaedre. You, you, I've grown up my entire life with you telling me about how wonderful that play is and how it's just people standing and talking at each other for three hours. <laughs> we can't do it. Um, <laughs> but, uh, so, so uh, yeah, so I went to him and said, hey, you want to you want to translate the miser for us? And he said, all right, I'm retired. <laughs> I got time. Um, so he tried a few pages of it just to see if this would work mm -hmm. and send it to me. And I sort of said, okay, well, yeah, there's a little wordy here. And oh, but this part, like there was this one speech um, that was just this wonderful, dialogic turn um, it was a lot of words it was a lot of words and a lot of sentences and like way more sentences than a normal person would use to get this point across but it all kind of flowed into itself hmm. and and uh, the the turn at the end of the speech was was just delightful and so I went yeah this could work <laughs> Um, and when I told him that, he said, yeah, that's the, that's the paragraph where I most faithfully translated what Moliere was writing. So then we went ahead with it, and, and he did his translation. Um, he was pretty loose, mm. pretty free and easy, and every once in a while while he was doing it, he would, he would come to me and say, yeah, I don't, I don't know how to translate this part because... Nobody cares that the Duke of Florence hated the <laughs> hated the Duke of Milan. Like, they, they, um, uh, so 
Um, so I said, so I put in, I could marry Martin Luther to the Pope, and I think that gets the point across. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's been a neat experience mm. just sort of getting his um, almost dramaturgical notes mm -hmm. as he's done the translation of, you know, I, I went with this choice for currency because they, they talk about, you know, they've got 15 different words for currency yeah. and we got to slim it down. Um, uh, there's, there's a line that he finally ended up translating as, of all the humans, he's the human, the least human. <laughs> and he said, yeah, it made more sense in French. <laughs> but, um, and, then, and then I did cut it down. Mm -hmm. And there are, the original idea was um, me going, Moliere is funny. Moliere is funny when you let him be funny. Mm. And oftentimes I've seen productions of Moliere that don't trust the source material. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I see that all the time with Chekhov. <laughs> yes, yeah, mm. Chekhov as well. And, I mean, with Chekhov, people just don't understand that he's funny. Yes, <laughs> that's, 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 that's a starting point as well, yes. Um, But, I, yeah, yeah. So you wanted the text to, you wanted a text that was a little bit more himself. That yeah, yeah. To let that breathe a little bit more because I I totally agree that happens in translation all the time. Mm -hmm. Is that it's like you've got the sense, but you're missing the, you're missing something. The animating energy behind the sense is yeah. lost in what you've done here. And you yeah. didn't carry the joke over. Yeah. You got the words, but the joke didn't come with it. Right. Um, because Moliere does not set up his jokes in one-two punchline mm. form. Like, he writes page-long jokes that are just, here's the theme of my joke, and now I'm going to elaborate it, and now I elaborate it a little oh more, and now I elaborate it a little more, oh and no. now we've reached the end of the joke. Um, <laughs> and so I wanted to strike a balance, because if you do the whole play that way, uh, it can get a little much. Right. Um, but I wanted to keep that, that sense of Moliere's comic rhythms and just try to, to engage with them mm -hmm. in, this, in this style where, yeah, you could say this in three words, but maybe saying it in 15 is the point. Mm -hmm. And that, I wanted to try to get us working in this way where you talk very fast. Mm -hmm. And you're allowed to talk very fast because the individual words are less important than the, than the whole sentence mm -hmm. or the whole paragraph. Yeah. Um, so you really do have to go along at a pretty decent clip. But the audience is able to follow you. Mm -hmm. It's not like you're losing them. Right. <sighs> <laughs> so that was the idea yeah, behind that's... behind getting this translation going. How long did it take? Uh, it took him a few months. Mm -hmm. um, it didn't actually. It took him faster than we all expected. Yeah, right, yeah. But <laughs> you, once he got on a roll, he just sort of yeah. went. Um, so you know, I got Act One, and then I got Act Two, and then I got 
Acts three, four, five, <laughs> just all in this lump. <laughs> yeah. Some. It's uh, I, this is such a random thing. My friend does a lot of freelancing stuff, um, but he got put onto this. Like Kelly Legal Services got hooked him up with Xerox, who was translating a bunch of German legal documents. Mm-hmm. And they're like, they're desperate, so come on board. So I had to jump on board. I was like, I haven't put on my German hat like that in a while. <laughs> I mean, I still listen to German podcasts and watch German movies and read German newspapers and stuff like that. Because yeah. I, I you know, stay connected with the language yeah. and, and, and yeah. with the country, the culture that I definitely fell in love with. Yeah. Um, but there was this moment, like the first day. You're just like, do I really know this language anymore? Because mm. I feel like I don't. I feel like I'm looking up every single word yeah. <laughs> right now, and this is just crazy. And then five days down the line, after I've been doing uh, 12-hour days, yeah, because um, they wanted it done right now. <laughs> um, by then, that was like, oh yeah. Now I'm now I'm looking things up less. Now I'm now I already know what the word means when I look at it. I'm just being sure. Yeah. And like and you you do develop this rhythm where it's like, oh okay, now we got it. Everything's here. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But the getting started can be so hard. Yeah. Because I don't know as much about French theater <laughs> history as I do about any other so is is he uh, in verse or uh, he wrote a lot of his stuff in verse. Mm-hmm. This is in prose. Mm, okay. Uh, which made everything a lot easier. I yeah, I was saying that. <laughs> but it's still uh, I should preface this by saying that I don't speak French, um, <laughs> but uh, apparently there there is this there's this economy of words in French yes. that I've been told about. That um, I mean, particularly the verse plays. Like part of the fun is seeing how many times you can rhyme with the same word yeah. and have it mean different things. Um, which, which, you know, in English, we think that's sloppy rhyming. Right, right, <laughs> right, right. Um, so, so, yeah, there's, it probably, I just get the feeling that there were slightly less syllables mm-hmm. when, in, in I totally believe in that. I, so one of the things that happens at the, at the, I was in the PhD program, so you're required to have, uh, to do primary source research mm-hmm. in two other languages as well. So I had to learn Russian and I learned French. Okay. And French is, French and German are both more economical with their words yeah. than English is. English yeah. has, spends a lot of time, there's a lot of time wasted on a rigid sentence structure in English. Right. Because we don't have case markings. Yeah. So you um, can physically say book, book was read or the book given by mom, I read and people will get it but it's english needs the grammatical markings are essentially about where it is in the sentence yes um and that's not true in french and german no. like the case markings are all there so they can put those words wherever they need to be in the sentence to get the sense of it so yeah. all of those ideas get expressed a lot faster yes and i i encountered this in philosophy where it is <laughs> like you need a paragraph in english to unpack this sentence of things like Heidegger, who's talking about the being of being, yes. or the existence of being. It's like, okay, which version of being does that being word mean? Because he's using different words, but uh-huh. they all kind of mean the same being thing. So how the hell am I supposed to do this? <laughs> and apparently, I didn't. I never did original philosophical intellectual history. Was uh, intellectual history of postmodernity was like my other main focus. Okay. So you're dealing with Derrida, you're dealing with Demand, you're dealing with a whole bunch of French right. post-structuralist philosophers who, apparently, and then. 
uh, I wish I had done this now, but liked to rhyme <laughs> in their philosophical texts, especially Derrida, who's that kind of asshole. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I totally, totally understand yeah. that, that level I was talking about. It's hilarious stuff. Um, so, uh, but you're doing the show, so I, I assume that means you're pretty satisfied with the, with, with the, the, the project. Yes. Yeah. As we, as we rehearsed, we found places where, so we, we were overlaying like <laughs> Moliere's original play somewhere in the background there um, with, these, with these superimposed, A, the translation, B, the commedia stylings and structure, and C, just the individual actor's um, creativity. So there, uh, <laughs> I, I feel happy about the fact that the play where it is, different scenes have very different feels to them. Uh, there are some scenes which are, which I feel very comfortable in saying, no, this is, this is Moliere. Um, and we really are honoring Moliere's rhythm. And then there are other scenes, kind of the opposite extreme, where we basically looked at Moliere's script and said, okay, we need to, we need to take eight pages of plot and do it in one, and so... And add a page of funny? And add a page of funny. <laughs> so we're, we're just not going to use any of the, of the police detective's original dialogue. We're just going to make that scene up. So there are some scenes like that. Um, however, I feel good about the the fact that we just didn't do the whole play like that. Mm, yeah, yeah, yep, yep. Um, and sort of as the play progresses, the structures get looser and looser. Mm. Um, because uh, Moliere was working fast and... Uh, was not overly concerned with the structure of his plays. Uh, he was much more concerned in the, his portrayals of his characters mm -hmm. and in the in the wit of his satire. Um, structurally, he was just like, "This is what a comedy looks like. Here we go." Mm. And so there is a totally unapologetic Deus Ex Machina. <laughs> like he doesn't even try. <laughs> To, to make it, <laughs> you know, this character shows up at the end and goes, ah, I'm related to all of you and I'm rich. <laughs> I will solve all of the play's problems. Um, so we just sort of decided we're, we're just going to go with this. Right. And we're, we're going to let the play get progressively loopier as it goes on and progressively less structured. And so the dialogue gets progressively less structured mm -hmm. as well. Um, just so that that deus ex machina occurs in this context of we've gone so far off the rails that that we're just going to have fun and solve this. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, yeah. That oh, dodgeball. Do you remember? Do you want to see the movie Dodgeball? No. Because they do that exact same thing at the oh, end. Okay. Like, apparently, the original. Dodgeball and underdog story. The original ending of that was that the underdogs did in fact lose, and uh -huh. it didn't test well. Uh -huh. So they're like, okay, and the bag of money comes down and makes up for all of the things, and they do, yeah. they win in the end. And underneath the lid of the treasure 
chest that they have, it says Dave's Expo. <laughs> right. <laughs> the end of it, they're like, okay, whatever, we're done. Yeah, yeah. yeah so you had a good time? Okay, great. Peace out. We're out. Right, <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. It's one of the things I love and I get in trouble for from people who don't want to think this hard about narrative <laughs> all the time. It's like, it's, to me, structure, structure is important because it is a distilled psychology. Yeah. Like, structure is not necessary, but structure is in, exists because of psychological satisfactions, repetitions, narrative arcs yes. that you feel good about and you notice these things being repeated all the time. Like Goethe famously said there's only ever nine plots in the whole history yeah. of the world. Like, and that's because the structure happens to the point where you know what's going to happen. And I, yeah. I witness this with my cousin all the time. She, she does not think at all about what she's watching. She's just consuming it. But you can tell even if she's like, what? How did you? I, I can't believe. Oh, let's let's do this. Expendables three. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> like her her, her instincts and her reactions are leading her yeah. where they're supposed to be, and she's still betrayed by them. And it, but it's fascinating to watch. Yeah. Um, because she's like, this guy says, uh, this is my last mission. After this, I'm out to start my family. And like, okay, he's dead. Like he's right. gonna die in the next <laughs> ten minutes. And she's like, oh, I really like him. I hope he doesn't die. He's like, oh my gosh. <laughs> Why does this still work with people? Oh, yeah. Man. Yeah. But so I notice it more in Shakespeare plays and other stuff that, that don't have that, that just don't have that interest in structure at all. Like the right. narrative structure just is not in place. But it, it, it's, it's still effective because the characterization is so effective. So right. Like, right. That works out that way. It's, but it is sometimes when you're, when you're, when my modern, like, this is how a story breaks down, looks at older plays, I'm like, this is just not how this works. Right. Well, right, but I mean, it is, it's, it's kind of a cognate, I think, for that same way that Moliere structures his jokes, is mm. that part of the fun is you see it coming, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and the characters can go on for pages of not seeing it coming, <laughs> and the audience is just sitting there going, how are you missing this? <laughs> And it's just like, it's, that's the game that he's playing sometimes. Mm -hmm. It's just like, how many different ways can I keep my characters in the dark? Yeah, yeah. It's fascinating. Like, you see that all the time in Hitchcock. Like, yes. Hitchcock's, the mm. definition of suspense is that the audience knows more than the characters do. Yep. Like, they see the bomb go under the table. It's not a surprise. So that's what that builds attention. And it also builds a funny. Like, yeah. if, you, if you know where that's coming from, you know where it's going. Yeah. Um, well, we are actually at our hour. All wow. right. So um, this is feels like a pretty good time to wrap up. Yeah. And that means telling the good people when and how often they can see the show. Yes. I can talk about that. Uh, <laughs> we open this week. Yeah, so we're looking at the elements of tech all around us. Yes, we are. <laughs> we're sitting in the middle of the theater right now, and um, we spent all weekend here. <laughs> and um, yeah, we open on, um, well, we have our pay what you can preview on Thursday. So okay. if you don't like paying for theater, come on Thursday <laughs> and pay what you can. And show is at 8 p.m. And, um, and then we have our official opening on Friday. Which is February, uh, which is June. February. June. <laughs> June the 3rd. June the 3rd. It's June outside. Um, and we go until the 26th. So we have four weekends of Friday at 8, Saturday at 2 and 8, and Sunday at 2. And we're here at Gallaudet University in the Eastman Studio Theater. Uh, yeah, and, and you can, can check out our website. Yes, you can. Website, get yes. Tickets online at www 
factionoffools.org. I will link to all these in the show notes as well. Woohoo! The show will drop probably Wednesday night, so we'll be all Thursday morning. Great. For the good people to buy those tickets. Yeah. Uh, is there any other social media? We have a Facebook thing? page. Okay. We and do specials we do have sometimes a on account. Facebook. We have a Twitter Only Gwen account. ever does anything with a Twitter <laughs> account, but she does a lovely job with it. Yes. So. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, Gwen Grassdorf, who we mentioned earlier, is our amazing social media person. So, yeah, we, we throw stuff up on Facebook and Twitter and. Um, yeah, and we have a cool trailer on Facebook you should watch. Oh, okay. Get some visuals. Cool. Absolutely. And you? Anything else for you? Uh, I'm good. <laughs> on Facebook. Check out Faction of Fools. All right. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for uh, meeting with me, guys. It's been a blast. All right. Thank thanks you. so much. Thank you.